Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, it is just us, Jack, uh, in the studio together, and we're going to talk about guns. One of my favorite subjects. I went to a gun show a couple weekends ago, took um, my daughter, my son, and uh, Anne came with us. And we were looking for a 20-gauge youth shotgun. And one vendor was trying to sell me on a different rifle. And um, I think it was a 12-gauge. And he said, uh, I'm a private seller, so no background check and no sales tax. I'm wondering if that's a loophole that uh, the gun uh, rights people um, uh, have um, have built into the system, or at least that's what some people claim. I don't know if it was built into the system, but that's certainly a problem with the sale of firearms. That's a well-known exception to the uh, firearm licensing laws. I enjoy gun shows. I think I had told you uh, before that um, when my uh, children were growing up, especially my son, not being uh, from a family that was uh, that ever went hunting or uh, you know uh, had guns around when I grew up, I decided that I would take some courses, uh, get some of our law enforcement clients to show me about guns, and teach my son daughters gun safety. And I have to tell you, there's a real draw to some of the firearms that you see at those gun shows. They are magnificent pieces of machinery or whatever we're going to call them. I don't think there's any question about that. I think there's a natural attraction to guns for a lot of reasons, no question. Well, uh, we had a client of ours that uh, had been going through a divorce, and uh, they decided they were going to sell his collection of firearms. And I don't know if you remember this. This has been probably 10 or 15 years ago. But he brought his firearms to the firm, and we laid them out in that front conference room. And he probably had 200 different types of guns, rifles, pistols, uh really some nice stuff and um i was like a kid in a candy store looking around at that stuff and uh and it went fast i mean people wanted to buy those but that's the type of sale that i can't see ever being regulated by the government as far as background checks it was a private sale of his guns we didn't have any ability to check who was buying them as far as backgrounds at the time i mean would that be okay with you i think it's a terrible idea for the obvious reason. The people that are buying are not being investigated as to their criminal background. And we like to dance around that as if a private sale is necessarily different in terms of buyers than the people who go to Dick's Sporting Goods. We're kind of kicking around right now what can be done to uh, lessen the proliferation of firearms. But let's go back to the basic tenant. Do we as Americans have an individual right to have a gun? And when I say an individual right, a right that the government cannot infringe upon. Well, I think we need to hit head on your, your 
the beginning of your question, do we have an individual right? And that was always the question. Is the right provided by the Second Amendment a reference to sort of a group right, a state, a militia, or do you have an individual right? And the Supreme Court answered that in the Heller case in 2008 and says individuals have an individual right to own a firearm. Now, that was limited to the context of a firearm in your house. The articles that have come out regarding the most recent Supreme Court decisions, and I'm saying that plurally, really have uh, taken me back to the days in law school. In our first year in law school, um, we're taught constitutional law, and we study as law students the uh, decisions of the Supreme Court and how they work through those decisions. And I think uh, lay people now kind of understand what we were being taught in law school, which is some jurists believe in... uh, expressing the original intent of our founding fathers as the Constitution, you know, is, is uh, read. And it's, what is original intent? Original intent is trying to discern what the drafters of that document thought at the time, right? And so I read an article the other day that was very poignant, and it said the Second Amendment is one of the few amendments that actually tell us what the Founding Fathers were talking about. It reads, a well-regulated militia, so that means something, what is a regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The article went on to say, what more do you need to know about the Founding Fathers' intent in drafting this Yeah, and so how did Justice Scalia, who penned the Heller case in 2008, go from that plain reading of the Second Amendment to say, oh, no, it's an individual right? I can't answer that question because I read the opinion, but it was years back. Well, the thing is this. I can see how you can get an individual right by the words, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. People, you could see how the jump to individuals can be made. But I don't understand, like you, how the Supreme Court, and look, these justices are smart people. They're well-versed in history and constitutional law. They have very smart people working for them. So I think that whatever they decide personally should be the right answer, they can come to a rational conclusion. But I don't know why the justices wouldn't explain than the meaning of a well-regulated militia. It seems to be the individual right is not attached to the broader concept here of a well-regulated militia. Well, I'm sure that point was argued uh, on behalf of the District of Columbia, which was the opponent in that case. But I think, well, my short answer to your question is, and I think this with a lot of Supreme Court cases, they decide things in a vacuum. That is, without deciding the practical, real-world ramifications of their decisions. And I think they fall back on this, um, what's the phrase they use? Interpreting it as it was written 200 years ago as an easy excuse for opinions that are very conservative and and very narrow-focused opinions that don't take into consideration 
um, the common good or what really is going to happen as a matter of practicality. Now, you and I uh, are in lockstep on our belief in democracy and American democracy. So we understand that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of what the Constitution means. And the fact that we have justices that we disagree with, and you and I are trained legally, so we may have a little bit more credibility in our, in our uh, criticism of these decisions. Uh, certainly in our own practices, we deal with judge decisions that we don't like, we don't agree with, we think are completely wrong, but yet that's the system we live in, right? Correct. So that takes us to the discussion as to what can we do about the problem that all of these guns that we are constitutionally allowed to possess is causing with society. I think the first step is to recognize that that Second Amendment is not unlimited. Now, the true hardcore gun enthusiasts refer to it as if it is unlimited, but it's not. There have been decisions from some states, and I think even in the District of Columbia, which was the site of the Heller decision, appellate courts, federal appellate courts, have upheld the bans of assault-type weapons, and in some situations, large-capacity magazines. So the issue is working on the edges, so to speak, to limit gun availability in such a way that it doesn't contravene the Second Amendment. And I think that can be done. The real problem is the lack of political will. Yeah, and that's amazing to me, although I like the guns I have. I have uh, two pistols, two twenty-two rifles, and a shotgun. Now, if you broke into my house, it would take me a while to unlock all of those and get them out of their secure places. So as far as protection from home invasion, I'm not sure how practical it is, but I think a lot of people believe that they should be able to have a gun to protect their own home. You don't have a problem with that. No, of course not. In fact, even though I have a pretty narrow view of what I would like to see as permissible for gun rights, I'm not as Adam Winkler, who wrote a book called Gunfight and Gun Laws, I'm not a gun grabber. In fact, <clears throat> um, I petitioned a court successfully to allow my client to regain his gun rights after a felony conviction. And I now have a second case like that. And by the way, their felony convictions were not based on the abuse of firearms. But my point is, these gentlemen who are now law-abiding citizens, I met them through my pr prison ministry, want to hunt again. God bless them. Let them go hunt. If they want a sidearm for protection in their house, not a problem. It's all the other problems that I'm concerned about that we read about with gun deaths. But if I have a pistol for home protection and I bring it outside and wear it around mm -hmm. in public, being a law-abiding citizen, what problem do you have with that? I think it sends the wrong message. I think it, in some cases, will lead to gun violence that is unnecessary. For example, we saw the video a couple years back 
Um, a gentleman pulls up to a convenience store. He gets out of the car. Apparently, he's parked in a handicapped spot. Nobody in the car is handicapped. Man comes up. Another man comes up and starts berating the first man's girlfriend wife. Man comes out of the convenience store and pushes this fellow away. The man out of the convenience store was not too pleased with somebody being aggressive with his wife. Well, this fellow falls on the ground and pulls out a gun. As he pulls out a gun, the first fellow, the one who did the pushing, steps back. The fellow on the ground shoots. Now, nobody was in imminent danger. And we are also seeing statistics. You're just starting now to see statistics that states with open carry and even, I think, concealed carry laws are starting to see more violence. What are the statistics on uh, gun violence? I know that you uh, pulled some out and they were pretty revealing to me when I think about one protection in, at the house, at my home, and then protection when I'm out in public. The, the most recent comprehensive, comprehensive stats I could find were from the FBI. So we had in 2019 just under 14,000 gun deaths. Outside of suicide, you want to throw suicide in there, you get another 20,000, give or take, right? So in roughly half of those cases, um, let's make it 7,000, yeah, in, in roughly half of those cases, the assailant is identified, right? So that's 7,000 cases. 5,700 of those cases, the murders were committed by a family member and a neighbor, an employee, an acquaintance, etc. Right? Only 1,372 murders out of that uh, 7,000 murders were by a stranger. Right? So the large majority of cases where you know who the assailant is, the victim knows the assailant. So your chances of being shot by somebody you don't know, what everybody talks about, I got to protect my family on the street, that's a really low probability event. Gonzo, I hate to tell you, you got a better chance of being shot by Ann than you do by somebody on the street. One of my uh, favorite movies is a, is a Western with uh, Clint Eastwood in it, Unforgiven. And there's, oh, yeah. a, there's a scene in it where the one um, lawman has one arm. But he's got four or five guns, and he's loading them in this one scene. And the other lawman goes, why do you have so many guns with a guy with one arm? Something to that effect. And he says, I don't want to die for lack of shooting back. <laughs> now, we laugh at that, but I have to tell you that with the shootings that occur in public places, you know, the most recent, obviously, a, a parade, I sometimes think that if... I were to ever use my gun, that's where I would want to use it, to where I may not be the target, like you say, of a, of a, a spouse or a neighbor or, or somebody at work, but I'm at a location where somebody is shooting up the lo everybody there, and would I use my gun to return fire is the question. What I'm reading is that when the bystander pulls out his weapon, it has the possibility, there exists a greater possibility 
of the wrong person being shot in, as part of this defensive tactic. And it causes confusion because now when the police arrive, you've got a gun. So are you a good guy or a bad guy? But you know what? There are even statistics that were recently released uh, from a Texas Institute. Let me see. This was the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Center at Texas State University, right? And it showed how in active shooting situations, that would be Uvalde or Highland Park, etc., very, very, very few times is the shooter subdued by gunfire by somebody, by a bystander. He's normally um, brought down by bystanders without a gun or he commits suicide or the cops get him. So this notion that someone like you, Gonzo, might come to the rescue, I mean, it just doesn't happen in terms of practicality. It just doesn't happen as borne out by these uh, analysis that were, excuse me, these analysis that were calculated. Now, and you've been on um, uh, shooting ranges and uh, firing both rifles and pistols. Mm -hmm. So most concealed carries, I believe, would be pistol, would be the weapon of choice. It's hard to hit something from 10 feet, let alone trying to hit a person under that type of, uh, you'd be under that type of stress because you're fearing for your life, maybe the life of your family, certainly the life of other people running, the, the confusion. Uh, if I can't hit something on a firing range at 10 or 15 feet, how am I going to hit something that's 30, 40, or 50 feet away? I told you the story a couple of days ago. I was with a friend of mine, and he had an AR-15, and I was able to hit a target with an AR-15. It was about the size of a garbage can lid, let's say a foot and a half in diameter. Hit it at 100 yards. Then he gave me a, it was, a, I think it was just a 22. We shot a 22 in a Glock at a very small target, like the size of a coffee saucer. At 10 yards, I never hit it. <laughs> I felt like Barney Fife. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's hard to hit a target with a pistol, which to me, having fired a fit pistol just on a range, standing static, I think it's ludicrous to arm teachers and expect those people to be able to shoot an, a, an a, a attacker without either hurting themselves or a fellow student or fellow teacher. I just, I don't see that they could be trained well enough to provide the protection that some of these lawmakers seem to think they can provide. Well, there are two problems with that approach. The first is, instead of attacking the core issue of too many guns that are not well-regulated, the legislator, legislature puts it on the schools well, if we're going to have, legi- excuse me, if we're going to ask school teachers to be armed, why don't we make them responsible for putting out fires? Why don't we make them responsible for putting on a new roof, right? I mean, there's no logic to that. Here's a second thought. You know, we had Bob Meter on the show a couple months back, and he was the commander of the police academy here in Columbus. So according to him, his candidates, you know, if you're going into that academy, they do about 20 hours of pistol work uh, per week for a month. 
And then they have some scenario training, maybe 50 to 100 hours. So they're getting a fair amount of training. But you know what? That's probably not even enough because think about everything a police officer has to do every day. He's not pulling the gun out every day. But now he's in, in a combat situation, and that's what I think we have to call it. It's a combat situation. The anxiety goes up. It's the fight or flee. And now you're expecting a teacher with minimal, if any, training to conduct himself well in a firefight. It's just goofy. It is. And when I've had uh, clients of mine that have been in law enforcement and were explaining to the jury their background, many of them have specialized training beyond the academy in firearms and tactics and and, you know, they might have been part of the SWAT team or some type of specialized unit where they are essentially training all the time for this one particular situation. And I can't see teachers doing it, having the time to do it. I think it's a uh, waste of resources uh, and it's just not going to matter in the in the long run. Well, remember what also Bob Meter told us, you know, when we got off mic. He said, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> You're going to eventually find a teacher who leaves the gun where she shouldn't leave it. A kid's going to pick it up and somebody's going to get shot. And then the other thing, let's remember that if a police officer uses a gun and shoots, there's an inquiry. Was this a lawful killing or was it an unlawful homicide? Well, teachers are going to be held to that standard, right? So we are now putting an unreasonable requirement on teachers who, from what I understand, for the most part, don't want that obligation. Well, there are some things that I've um, read that I would agree with as far as uh, trying to um, make gun ownership safer. Uh, one of them was, which seems like a very simple idea, raise the legal age to buy a rifle to 21 which would be the same age to buy a handgun. Tell me why there's a difference. Is it something to do with hunting? I think you have to realize that it's just a matter of political will. You know, the NRA went through a dramatic and immediate metamorphosis, so to speak. I think it was 1977. Prior to that, its motto was, you know, sportsmanship, target practice, etc. And not like other entities, it helped form laws, right? Just like the National Association of Realtors sometimes talks with Congress about legislation concerning real estate. That's what the NRA, the NA, NRA did back in the day. In 77, it became this rather militant group that didn't want to see any limits on the Second Amendment. They have big pockets. If you don't vote according to the way the NRA want you to vote, you suffer terrible political pressure. And I know from the very first gun op-ed that I wrote, God, 15 years ago, I had to suffer being called the idiot of the day that was on. If you Googled my name, that's how it came up. Well, there's, uh, there's red flag laws. I think that the new legislation is trying to address those, which is... Uh, Basically, going to court uh, and uh, and getting a restraining order on a person's right to possess the firearms. 
I am a big proponent of red flag laws. And I think the courts, because, you know, it, our judges have experience with these restraining orders, with these emergency orders, with offering the due process necessary, that, uh, you know, why can't that be an option that is readily available? It should be. And here's what's interesting about guns in the house. Now, you and I agree, gee, you should, yeah, what's wrong with having a gun in your house for self-defense? Put aside the red flag issue for a moment. There are a couple important things. First of all, kids find guns. And if you start watching, I'll bet once or twice a month, you'll see something in the paper about a toddler getting a gun, either killing himself, his little brother, or his parent. Second thing is there are studies coming out, and one is from a gent named Hemingway from the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, and also by a gent, I think his name was Arthur Kellerman by, back in the day. As the number of guns in a household increase, so does gun violence and the potential for gun violence, which of course now ties into red flag laws. So we are feeding the problem by virtue of having more guns. I also think that this idea of uh, expanding the background checks, and uh, I don't know how far you can go, but certainly anybody that is selling guns in a commercial situation for profit should have to conduct a background search. Well, why shouldn't that private seller be, be required to? Well, I think that the way I think of that is, is if I am going to give you a gun or you're going to buy it off me and you and I are buddies, right, then I know you and I have some comfort level in that. Okay, that's Jack. As opposed to a total stranger that walks up and says, hey, I'd like to buy your gun. That's exactly, you've, you've just articulated the fallacy with your own point there, if I may say so, Mr. Gonzo. So what about the fellow at the gun show who said, I'll sell you a gun, no background check, no sales tax. He didn't know who you are. He didn't. And he's in, he would, to me, fall under the commercial activity. So he's basically a dealer. But he's not a dealer according to the law right now. Right. So I, I would be in favor of tightening that up. And I think okay. the new legislations is trying to do that, where they're trying to define who's a, who should conduct background searches by tying it to how much activity you have with respect to how many sales, do you make a profit? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to it, but I don't think that we can restrict because it's just not going to work, Jack, that private sale. Well, the consequence would be then... If you're found with a gun that wasn't that you acquired other than through a licensed dealer, now you've got some criminal liability. Well, let's take the word criminal out of it. I don't know why negligent entrustment wouldn't be a viable law, you know, lawsuit to correct. If I give somebody a gun mm -hmm. without conducting a background search they take that gun and they kill somebody just like if i gave somebody my keys knowing they were drunk and they take the car and they kill somebody there's liability in the civil area for that too well if your sale resulted in a death i'm saying there ought to be a consequence even if there wasn't a homicide a homicide as a result of the sale 
making, read, making it sort of a strict liability. I read a uh, interesting uh, article where the um, author said, you know, maybe we could use the tax code. And uh, his uh, thought was uh, offer tax deductions for the purchase of gun safes for home and car. Ooh. And you think, well, what else could we use the tax code for? Uh, you know, could you give a tax deduction if people bring their firearms in and surrender them? Uh, do you offer a tax deduction for registering all your firearms? Do you, you know, uh, it, monetary incentive is a big motivator. Well, I like that. That's being creative. There might be something there. And then um, training. You know, I took my concealed carry course. And while I already knew the law of concealed carry, most of the course dealt with book reading. There was very little firearms training, which surprised me. And I would love it if, again, either government-sponsored or there's some incentive through tax deductions that people can get more training about safety of firearms, just regular people that have firearms that don't pull them out and don't use them except maybe once every several months at a gun range. Well, I think you've latched onto something that is part of one of the many myths or objections, and that is the real hardcore gun enthusiasts or gun nuts, as Adam Winkler calls them, want no impediments to purchasing a gun. You ought to be able to just buy a gun, end of discussion. People like you and me say, well, there should be a reasonable amount of instruction and safety training. I mean, it just stands to reason. But I've just articulated what the objection to that is. Unfortunately, reason is being overlooked by just this enthusiasm for unbridled rights. And it goes back to politics, obviously. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, there's is there the stomach uh, within the political structure? I think that, you know, the, the problem mostly on the Republican side is they're not going to alienate law-abiding gun owners, right? Because that support is crucial to Republicans. And, and, you know, I always kind of cringe at that law-abiding citizens. I heard somebody say, yeah, everybody's a law-abiding citizen until, until he's not. Well, the, the problem I see is that, and I think that there's some legitimacy to that position that, hey, you know, I own guns. I own them safely. I haven't had a problem. Therefore, why are you trying to take my guns away? But there has to be some movement to writing laws that distinguish between law-abiding gun owners and people with criminal intent. And that's tough. Well, no, you just touched on a pivotal issue. You use the words, I don't want my guns being taken away. I haven't seen or heard anybody well, wait a minute. There was Beto O'Rourke when he was running for Senate who said, you're damn right I'm going to come get your guns or something like that. I think he's the only one. So that, I don't see that as being actually on any gun safety party's agenda. And let me so let me continue for just a second. Maybe you, John would have to endure a couple extra days of a background check. Maybe you would have to endure going through another class. But all those things are necessary because we have 
I think we had actually 19 or 20,000 gun homicides in the last year or two outside of suicide, put another 20,000 on there for suicides. And you have to take measures because guess what? Every two weeks we're reading about a mass shooting. And so now we we seek refuge under the Second Amendment. Oh, we, you know, just can't do anything about this. People have to die. Well, that's crazy talk. I mean, there's lots of room to regulate without hampering your ability to be a gun enthusiast. But we clouded under this package of we can't do anything to minimize the breadth of the Second Amendment. Well, it is a uh, terrifying prospect that a child can get a gun in my home. Yeah. Uh, I told you that I had a gun stolen from my vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still have nightmares about that in the wrong hands. Do you realize how many guns are stolen annually? It's no. on the. I've heard different stats, but sort of in the middle is three hundred thousand. The other thing about taking guns, it's really not a practical uh, solution. There are hundreds of millions of firearms owned by Americans. We're not going to do anything about those guns. People are not going to give them up. That's political suicide to even talk about it. So really what we're at is making it harder to get guns, which may dissuade a person with criminal intent, or trying to figure out who is potentially a dangerous person through some type of, I don't know, observation, psychological evaluation, if enough people feel that you're a danger? Well, you know, that's a good point. But unfortunately, that in itself isn't enough. One thing we're not doing is we're not studying the different types of gun violence. So we are attempting to cure this problem without really knowing what's going on. It would have been like trying to cure COVID without studying it. But let's think about it. You know how many different kinds of gun violence we have? You know, we have gun violence committed in the course of a felony. You know, you're being robbed while you're at the ATM. We have domestic disputes. We have anger, fights, just two guys in the neighborhood. We have mass shootings. We have gun gang violence. We have suicides. We have accidental shootings, most often, in, most often including kids. Well, each one of those is a separate problem. But we're not reading about the government spending time trying to dissect the common factors in each one of those and what it takes to reduce each one of those. Well, that's true to some extent. But if you take domestic violence, so in, a, in the course of a divorce, if a partner shows violence, you can go get a civil protection order. That civil protection order means all the guns are removed and confiscated. I like that law. I think that is exactly addressing it. You take the accidental shootings by kids. There's now criminal penalties for parents that don't properly secure their firearms. You know, there's, uh, there's uh, obviously a lot of ways that you can lock up or, um, or keep your firearms safe from children. So I think those areas are addressed. I, I don't because, well, first of all, I don't know how it's handled in every state, but states aren't handling all these issues uniformly. You're correct to point out that those mechanisms are available, 
but I, I'd be willing to believe that we don't have enough of that in most of the states. But you would agree we have some. There oh, is gosh, a mechanism. Yeah. Sure. But what's sure. the mechanism to stop a mass shooting? I mean, those people are evil. How do you stop evil? I'm glad you said that. Because that's another facade the conservatives hide behind. They say, oh, these people are evil. We can't stop evil. Well, since when do we say this problem is just too big to tackle? I mean, really, that's just sort of a cowardly way to approach it. Let's study mass shootings. What are we going to find? Well, first, we're going to find they all used assault-type weapons. That is, semi-automatics, lots of magazine capacity. Well, maybe you have to make the decision and say, we don't sell those anymore. If you've got one, that's fine, but we're not selling those anymore. And I don't know what other relief can be made. We're also seeing another common denominator, which is it's often white people, often youths. What does that mean? I don't know. But certainly the people in charge who are investigating these things are coming up with the common denominators, but we're not figuring out how to respond. Does that make sense what I just no, said? No, it does. It, it absolutely does. It um it's one of those things where uh, I agree 100%. We're not going to eliminate it, but not doing anything isn't an option. Well, it's it's really just a way of getting out from under the problem. If you say they're evil, that suggests that we're powerless. Holy cow. The drug cartels are evil. We don't say we're going to stop interdicting drugs, right? I find it difficult uh, to believe that I would pull a gun out in almost any situation. I mean, even legitimate uh, situations involving law enforcement officers turn ugly fast when a gun's involved. Um, that's going to ruin your life, whether you're the person on the wrong end of that gun or the person firing it. Um, there's got to be something done, Jack. Um, Maybe we should look to some guests that can help us figure this out and, and let people know affirmatively what can be done in this area. Well, I think that's a good point. Um, and I think another thing is just part of our, our culture. We're, we're now sort of being empowered to think that we should be able to defend ourselves in all situations, that it's okay, notwithstanding the great hazards and risks, not only to the shooter, but to the people around him. We're sort of inculcating this notion that it's okay and that you have a right. And that is, I think, dangerous. And I think, can I digress for just a minute? I, I always like to hear this, well, I need a gun so I can protect my family when I go out. My first thought is, where are you taking your family that you not? you need to be protected? I mean, really? The second thing is, this will probably sound like heresy to most gun enthusiasts, the gun won't protect you. If a gun alone would protect you, we wouldn't have had cops assassinated some number of times in the last five years. The one that stands out in my mind is in Dallas a couple years ago. The cops are in their car, they're doing whatever they do, paperwork, I don't know. They are assassinated. So it's not the gun that keeps you alive, it's the self-awareness 
It's being totally aware, always focusing, always being on the lookout. Because if somebody gets the drop on you and you're carrying a gun in your waistband and somebody gets the drop on you and puts a gun to the back of your head, your gun doesn't do you any good. The problem is that's what we think we need. We need to have the gun. But we can't live with self total situational awareness all the time. You'd be frozen. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't walk to your car. You'd always be looking over your shoulder. Well, if that's impossible, then you have to go back to, well, how do we make sure that I'm going to be safe walking from here to my car? And that's where effective gun regulation comes in. But we don't want to tackle that. No, we don't. All right, my friend. Good discussion. Uh not a subject or issue that's going away anytime soon. It's not going away soon, and hopefully the continued killings that we've just seen and which will continue might, just might, spur Congress to do more. Hopefully. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.